I recorded this episode in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, actually in the suburbs, if you know Nashville, in Bellevue, Tennessee, last Sunday, making my way past the patches of black ice, had just a lovely snow on Friday night, Saturday morning. And um, it's with a woman from my hometown, and I mention that for two reasons. One is I was in Nashville to, on my day job, uh, recording an interview, which turned out great. Got to work with a great videographer and recorded an interview from my day job at Voice Locket. If you want to check that out, it's at voicelocket.com, preserving the voices of these people who go before us, even though this woman's not much older than me. Um, and the second thing is, this woman that I'm talking to today is from my hometown of Albany, Georgia, the capital of what we call Sawiga, Southwest Georgia, or we just call it South Georgia. And um, I've talked to, if you like today's episode, which, let me say, producer Liz Egan thought it was like the best she'd heard. Um, it's, it's a little bit longer than usual, but oh my God, is there a lot packed into it. If you like it, I've talked to five other women from my hometown, including my mom, who's no longer with us, uh, in an episode called Preserving Mom's Voice, episode 102. But the one I would steer you toward is episode 45, which is more than a year ago. And it's about Mary Hopper, and it's called Mary's Lost Daughter. And so if Mary is kind of of the same generation in Albany, Georgia, as um, Jean is. And what that means is before integration. Um, and so in today's episode, you'll actually hear some memories, a very distinct memory of Martin Luther King, who was in my hometown of Albany, Georgia. The Albany movement was alive and, and you know, just blowing up, burgeoning. We were on the front pages of, you know, like the national newspapers. Um, 60 years ago uh, this year, so 1962, 60 years ago this year. And it's also important to record these voices, not just to preserve the voices, but to preserve the history, to preserve the stories, um, which are not always what you read in the papers. Um, very distinct and very personal. I hope you like it. Enjoy. You have to heal this stuff, you know, because I don't want some little girl in my family now to, to care, because it will be carried. He's not here, but that darkness will be carried. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to Man Listening. Boy, is there a lot packed into today's episode. It goes from New York theater, it goes from Albany, Georgia, and sort of pre-civil rights, to New York theater, to a, a, a book which uh, Jean uh, Hall wrote called A Legacy of Lies. I, I just can't even begin to describe how wonderful and what a great storyteller this woman is. So I'll let you hear from her yourself, Jean Hall. Where were you born? 
I was born in Albany, Georgia. Uh, at that time, it was a small town in the southwest corner of Georgia. Hospital or home? Hospital. And the interesting part about my birth was I was born on my mother's 42nd birthday. Uh -huh. And at that time, women did not have babies in their 40s. You had your children in your late teens and your 20s, and then you're done. That it just wasn't done. So when she found out that she was pregnant, she was horrified. You know, what will people think? At that time, when she spoke about being pregnant, here's what she would do. She would put her hand, you know, her hands over her face and go, you know, she's PG. <laughs> you know, you couldn't even say pregnant. She was, but she had, she had had three boys and she had always wanted a little girl. And uh, so I guess it was destiny and we made some kind of agreement that we would, I would give her that gift, that special gift on her 42nd birthday. So that's what we did. So what do you mean agreement? Some kind of agreement that we made like karmically in the sky before I got here. I mean, it was just too profound the way that it happened, you know, that 25 years she had tried three times and she all she'd ever dreamed about was a little baby girl that she could dress up and put little curls in her hair and, you know, that little southern doll thing. And, and I just felt like, oh my God, I, I knew because her favorite story, when she found out she was pregnant, the doctor told her, and she went, I am not. And she stormed out of the office, the doctor's office, because she was so horrified. But, you know, nine months later, I came, and <laughs> I feel like during that gestation period, I knew that she didn't want me. But then when I got here, she was like, oh, my God, you're so precious, you know, and you're everything I dreamed of, rosy cheeks, and I had no hair. Even on my first birthday, she, uh, you know, scotch taped a bow on the top of my head so I could be that little girl. But she did dress me up like a doll, you know, and... Um, little dresses and she made the ringlets on her fingers. We didn't have all the hair blowers and stuff then. She'd just uh, wet, dry, you know, wash my hair, roll it on her finger, you know, like wrap it around, and then it would just come down in these beautiful little curls. You have pictures of yourself? I do. Wow. I have one that says it all, where it's like, Get me the hell out of this dress. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. But she, I, I was never what she wanted. So you That's have right. to meet like all that, all that hope is poured into this one single child. That's exact. Oh, very well said. That's and, exactly it. It's an impossible standard. It was for both of us. You know, that sort of began 
our conflict began in the womb, you know, and then when we, when I came out, I just wasn't what she had expected. Even though I looked like that with the little curls and she dressed me that way, but that was not my spirit, you know, my spirit was very different. So what happened when you became a teenager? All hell broke loose. Oh, dear Lord, yeah. And what did that look like? Well, you know, I I was a typical teenager. I wanted to try everything, and I did. I started drinking, of course. I was in, uh, actually, in New Jersey when I had my first drink, and my brother, the one who lives in Albany, was older than me, and he, he was trying some vodka. So he he said, here, you just try a little bit of this. And so I I tried it. It was in orange juice, vodka and orange juice. And we were sitting in this convertible on the beach. And I remember like trying to, I had my legs crossed and I tried to put my elbow on my knee and I was falling <laughs> down. I was like, oh, this is really nice. And that, that moment was the beginning of my journey with alcohol. That did not turn out well, but has now. But that was sort of the, um, you know, she still wanted me to be all those things. And she was just horrified that I wanted to dance. At that time, you did not dance. You know, we were very Southern Baptist. And so... So we're talking basically the end of the 50s. Right. End of the the 50s and early 60s. I graduated high school in 62. So when you say dance, live band or records or what? Any of it. You did not, you just didn't dance. And what kind of music would you listen to? What did you dance to? I listened to Bo Diddley was one of my favorites. Ray Charles was always my go-to guy. From from Leesburg. Spent some time near Albany, Georgia. Yeah, he was born in Leesburg. And Albany claims him, and that's very funny because I don't think he claimed Albany. Never. No. He did not. No. no. And they, they've, they, they're the ones who've done that. That's right. And there's a monument to him. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Big sculpture sitting yes, at the piano. at the piano. And they play his music. That's there right. can be nobody sitting there in that riverfront park and they'll still like pipe his <laughs> That's music. Right. I haven't <laughs> done that yet. It's actually kind of funny. <laughs> but I mean, you know, think about this that I, at, you know, because back then uh, th- there were two schools. One was the white school, one was high schools, I mean, and one was the black school. Right. And um, you did, we, our paths did not cross. And at that time, in you know, like in our church, um, where'd you go to church? First Baptist, the church. No, no dancing there. No dancing there. <laughs> no, no sock hops. Down no the, sock the hops. Baptist. None of that. No, no, no. Uh, but I loved to dance, and I loved black music. It was just in. It was just something that I resonated with, rather than bubblegum stuff. I just never liked that, but that was like in my soul somehow. What were your encounters with black people? Like, what is your idea of black people in, because 
Albany, Georgia was in the so-called Black Belt. W.E.B. Right. Du Bois wrote about black, about right. the, the descendants of slaves, about how they arrived, when they arrived, you know, and, and, and yeah. then the, the entire history. So what was your personal relationship? Well, I had a very interesting one, thanks to my father, who was um, a wonderful man who was an insurance salesman and not a very good one. Um, he, he had no business sense. He had such a big heart that um, he, he, he had a lot of clients in the black community. And I don't have to tell you, it was not called the black community then. Um, but he had a, a lot of his clients were in that community. And sometimes he would take me with him on his rounds because he, he went around and collected the money then. They're, they didn't have uh, ATMs and, you know, big uh, things we have, PayPal. No checks either. No checks, none of that. This was an envelope. It was an envelope, exactly. So we, I, he would take me out with him, and then when he went in to be with the client, I would play with their kids in the yard, you know? So, I mean, we just had a wonderful time. And as you know, children don't see all that we put on it, you know? Kids just, uh, let's play. So we played, and ran around and I, I I feel like my father my father showed me that color is something that we do, there's it, it's a this is a human being you know and let's play let's enjoy and oftentimes I remember the uh, it was often a woman who was there uh, didn't have the money and and she would she would say to my dad, Mr. Hall, I I just don't have it this month. And and he'd say, That's okay. And he'd take he'd take that money out of his own pocket and he'd put it in that envelope. So I mean all those things are very vivid in my brain of how to how to behave towards people, you know that those little events at those little houses there have carried me through my whole life. Just those simple little things, but they were the basis and the foundation for, for how I've lived my whole life. And he never spoke a word about it. And what did your mother and father, uh, your mother in particular, think of your kind of record collection uh, of your, you know, liking the dance, liking that music, that kind of thing. I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> Did she tell you that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's not... It, it, it's, now, you'd it, been listening to Pat Boone. Do you think you would have gotten that message or... <laughs> No, Pat, Pat was okay. And my mother's favorite person was Liberace. Let's think about that. <laughs> he was acceptable. He was very acceptable. And he was not going to hell. No, and she was very much in love with him in yeah. our 
bizarre kind of way. And <laughs> we know how that all turned out. But <laughs> yeah, and I remember too, you will, you know, the downtown area was where they had the, we didn't have malls then, and the downtown area was where the, you know, the stores were where you shop for things. And I remember the one on the corner and we always shopped there and, and they had water fountains and they had the whites only sign. And, and I remember thinking, well, what's the difference in this water? You know, that this is for white people and that one over there is for the black people. What's the difference in the water? And it, it just, none of it made any sense to me. So I remember taking the sign down and I, I put it in my pants and I took it out of the store and I threw it away. And then, of course, the next time I went there, there was another sign that said whites only. How old were you? I was a teenager then. And, and that wasn't, that was kind of a protest or? It uh, was like this, this doesn't make any sense. What, what are, why can't they drink where I drink? It just didn't make sense. But it wasn't talked about, you know. I mean, it was very serious back then. And Martin Luther King was, um, he was protesting in Albany, and he often preached down on, I think it was Whitney Street. There was a black church down there. And he, he often came there and spoke. Did you ever see him with your own eyes? I have a very interesting story about that. I want to hear it. Okay. This was after I was, um, well, you know, he, he protested and it was a horror to a lot of people that he would be there and blah, blah, blah. Well, the spring and summer of 1962, which would have been 60 years ago now, he was in Albany and there was the, what they call the Albany Movement. I'm sorry. That's exactly correct. Go on. Yeah. With Lewis. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was very, and we were very much in the national news, which horrified some people that our lovely little town was on the national news for such a horrid, you know. Outsiders, that, oh, outside yeah. agitators. Oh, yeah, them agitators. Um, but um, anyway, so he was very much a part of uh, you know, our experience. I interrupted your story. You were yes, saying. Yes, now I'm going back to that. Okay, help me. Stay on track. I was older. I think, I'm not sure if I had, I was about a teenager. Eight, about 18. Yeah, something like that. And I was going to visit my sister in Philadelphia. And so I went to the airport getting ready to board and all of a sudden all these cars come screeching and stopping and the sirens are going and people get out of their cars and start running all over the airport. They go to the plane, uh, you know, this is a small airport and you walk, you know, you don't go through what you go through now. So they were all over the plane and, and, and I go, what's going on, what's going on? And they say, there's a bomb on the plane. It's the FBI. 
And we find out shortly that on the plane with me will be Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife, Coretta King. And that's why there was a bomb on the plane. So, Not a real bomb. Well, they thought it was a bomb. And that's why they were there. And, you know, we wait for hours and they search the plane and they're, then they're convinced that there isn't a plane and we're able to fly. So I get on the plane. It's a little chopper going from Albany to Atlanta. I get on the plane. A little crop plane. It's a little crop plane, yeah. I'm sitting on an aisle seat here and diagonally from me, because we're the only people on this plane. And there's Dr. King and his wife. Coretta. And I'm, I'm sitting on the plane and I'm going, oh my God. They thought there was a plane, a, a bomb. They didn't find it. Any moment I'm going to blow up and I'll always be known as the girl that was on the plane with Dr. <laughs> King and his wife who up. <laughs> Little white girl, Little also white killed. Girl, also <laughs> killed, yes. But, you know, and I, I have very few regrets about my life, but that is one that I didn't get myself out of my seat and go over there and go, talk to me, you know, tell me anything. But I was, I was so scared. I just, I watched them. But we safely made it uh, to Atlanta. What I try to tell people is, you know, there's this notion that if you were white and you were in Albany, Georgia, then basically you were with the Klan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, and it's, I'm like, you, what you don't understand is the... I call it genteel racism. Yeah. Ultimately, Dr. King was able to affect massive change. Yeah. But he didn't do it in Albany. Yeah. And that was because the racists were not with the attack dogs. They were, you know, they wore suits and ties and they, as they say, they yeah. operated fountain pens. They didn't yeah. operate you know, fire hoses and attack dogs, they operated fountain pens. Yeah, they were the sheriffs. They were the sheriff, they were the mayor. Yep. They were the, it, was, it was my father's best friends were who ran Albany, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. You know, talk about being yeah. on the wrong side of history. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, thinking about that genteel racism, I mean, I, I do remember, uh, I mean, we were not, uh, my father died when I was seven, and that left my mother with two small children, you know, not a, a lot of skills. She'd been a housewife, and and so she she did what she knew how to do. She was smart in that way. She knew how to cook, so she got a job. Um, in the school system, you know, as uh, in the kitchen making lunches for kids. And she also did it at the First Baptist Church because on Wednesday nights you had Wednesday night suppers. And so she, that was her job. And um, 
one of the women that worked there, her name was Mary, and of course she was black. We didn't have any money, but somehow Mary got to come to our house once in a while to help my mother keep the house clean because we didn't, you know, she was a working mother. And I remember being, I think I was like 16, and I was newly driving. And so a mother let me take Mary home. Um, and she lived over on the other side of town. And um, so we, we get in the, we start to get in the car and she just naturally gets in the back. And I said, no, no just sit here. And sit up front. Yes, yeah, sit with sit beside me. And so she, I could see her reluctance, but she did it. And then I thought, you know, later, many years later, how terrifying that was for her at that time. You know, we're driving through the heart of downtown Albany. I'm a little white girl. I got this black woman sitting in the front seat like we belong and how how uncomfortable that had made her that I mean she was the one I was not nothing was going to happen to me but something could have happened to her that how dare you sit in the front seat you know and I've thought about that so many times of like she was a, a part of our family in a sense, and that's how we viewed the help. Um, but that was put her in a, a very difficult situation for her. Um, and but, you like see all this in retrospect. As a child, you think you're being kind. But in fact, what it does is like force the issue out. Like for her, it just makes her uncomfortable. Right. And I, you know, I was, I was mirror, mirroring the behavior of my father. He didn't make those distinctions, you know. He just, how y'all doing? Sit down, they talk, have a great time. Oh, you don't have the money? Okay. Um, he, I, I was... I was repeating what I saw done. And so I think that that's okay too, you know, because I think that that has served me well. Um, but I'm just thinking about that day, how that was difficult. And I could see something on her face, but I didn't make all that connection. You know, I was 16. I didn't make the connection of, oh, this is 1960 in the Deep South. You know, I didn't make all those connections at that time. Where did you get some distance in time and space from Albany, Georgia, to be able to look back on these kinds of stories and process them and filter them? and gain some understanding of what went on, make some sense of it. I had a dream, uh, my own personal dream, not Dr. King's, but I had a dream, and that was to get the hell out of there. <laughs> and uh, You're not the only one. 
yeah no it was like oh my god just get me out of high school and anyway i <clears throat> i went to college and then i i graduated and i lived in atlanta trying to sort of find my way where did you go to college a Mercer University. I yeah. went to Shorter College first in Rome, Georgia, yeah. and they kicked me out for um, drinking and staying really? out late. Yeah. Really, party animal. Oh yeah, they trapped us. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> that's a whole other story. But so I went to New uh, to Atlanta. They're like, okay, what am I going to do? And I did all these odd jobs, and and one Saturday morning. I was lying in bed and I went, you know what, get up, get out of here and do what you want to do. So I packed everything up that day, I drove home to Albany, I walked in and I said, Mother, I'm moving to New York City. And she just about had a heart attack. <laughs> But I did it. I wanted to be an actor, so um, I, I, uh, I moved to New York, and I knew, I knew one person there, and I stayed with her until I got my own place. And, um, you did know, you I, act? I did, and I got lots of those, uh, you know, I was a server in uh, lots of little restaurants, and... Um, what kind of acting? Stage? Or? A stage, yeah. I studied with uh, Stella Adler. Wow. Know. Yeah. How'd you get in there? Just, uh, I had to. <laughs> you know, just kept just showing sheer, up. Just sheer guts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a lot of drive, and I wanted it so badly. And, um, and so, you know, I did the interview, and I got in, into the school, and I had no money. I worked as a, uh, at the concession stand at the Cinerama, Cinerama Theater on uh, Broadway. And, uh, that, and oftentimes that was my dinner, was the popcorn, because I had no money. And every penny I got went to Stella, you know, so I could do that. And, um, but I, re uh, I remember the first day I saw her. You don't get to meet the queen, you know, right away. But the first day of class, sitting there and everybody is so nervous because they're all like me. They've never met the woman before. And then we're waiting, waiting, and finally, it's like those old films of Loretta Young swinging through, the, the door opens. And she's like six six, you know. <laughs> she's gigantically tall, and stunningly beautiful. I had never seen anybody this beautiful. And she swings open the door, and she looks at all of us little peons sitting in the theater. She goes, "Welcome to the theater." Oh my God, we all fainted. She was just, oh, amazing. Talk about an entrance. Oh, my God, yeah. But she, she was like a key figure in, in my life for quite a while. And uh, she took us in. She'd never done this before, but she formed a repertory company with some of us from those classes. And we toured all over New England and upstate New York. What kind of shows did you do? 
Oh, we did, uh, you know, she was very classic, classic theater. She loved Tennessee Williams, you know, owned, uh, 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 Eugene O'Neill, you know, all those beautiful old, old plays. And we did some musicals as well. But anyway, she was a very strong influence in my life for a long time. So, were you a professional? Did you support yourself? For a while I did. Wow. Yeah. And that is no small thing. It was not small and you know, but it, that it, but it's hard to get a job in the theater. I mean, I did a lot of summer theater. I did a lot of uh, off-Broadway and then you've got to feed yourself, you know, and I got sort of got to the place where and I, um, I was doing a lot of auditions for commercials and and I just was like, oh my god, you want me to sell this little box of soap and I know how to play Medea, you know, <laughs> it's like, no, this is making no sense. Oh gosh, I was trying to tell you about, you know, if you, as a small town girl, going straight into Manhattan, you know, I saw every color, I heard every language, you know, all these things that I had never experienced in my life. You know, I only heard English. And you go there and there's people on the subway are speaking their languages and they're all different colors of people and oh my gosh, it was like, oh my God, look at the world. It's amazing. And I, I never saw any of that growing up. So it was like I, I was completely a sponge to everything around me. And everywhere I went, there was a different style and a different, and um, it was, it, it, it was like I was, I really was a sponge. Just fill me up. Let me see more. Let me, let me hear more. And that's, you know, all that stuff that my father taught me, just, I got plopped right in the biggest city in the country. You know, and it just fed my soul being there. And, uh, but then one day I went, you know, I really got to eat. You know? <laughs> I really do have to eat. Uh, and uh, that's when somebody said, you know, uh, I think you might be good for this job at Billboard. And I had n no experience in this, but I went there and I, I they had an opening in the radio um, airline division. And uh, I don't know, somehow I got the job and then I was a producer of uh, radio shows and um, airline shows. And that, that would be on the planes. On they the would planes, be uh -huh. you, you could listen to it through your headsets right. on the planes. Uh -huh. Yeah, and at that time that was a big deal though, mm -hmm. to get uh, all artists wanted to be on, and we so had. You didn't like DJ, but you were you. Um, you would produce it. Were you the anchor? Were you the voiceover? Uh huh. Yeah. You did. Yeah. You've uh -huh. got great pipes. You've got a good. You've got a good strong voice. <laughs> that acting yeah. paid off. It did. <laughs> did uh, you lose the southern accent? Well, this is another story. I. You know, everywhere I went when I first moved to New York, they were like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen to you. 
<laughs> and I go, okay, this, and of course you can't be an actor and have a southern accent, you know. So I, I got a job as a page at um, NBC Studios in Rockefeller Center. And part of your duties, when you weren't giving a tour, you um, sat in the booth in the lobby and you sold the tickets to the tours. And so sometimes I'd just be there for a while without anybody coming to me. So I had my little, uh, all my pages for how to say an A and what words are, you know, have an A in it that sound like this or an all the vowels and then how to do your T's and how to do your P's and and I just sit there and go you know owl not all like I learned you know oil uh, you know all I just practice 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 and um, that's how I uh, got past that but an interesting story now that we're on this is we also um, were in charge. Uh, Johnny Carson was, uh, you know, that's where his studio was then. We were in charge of getting the audience in, filling the studio before he, you know, the show started. So um, <clears throat> we did that, and one day I was supposed to be up on the studio 8H where he was. And I go, I, I go up, I'm on the floor, and um, we're to greet the, you know, the stars that are coming on to be on the show. So the elevator door opens, and there is Miss Judy Garland. Oh, my God. So she's standing there, and she is drunk as a skunk. And she's got these two beautiful young men on each side. So they take her. Holding her up. Holding her up. And they, she gets out of the elevator and I'm like, oh my God, there's Judy Garland and she's drunk. <laughs> and anyway, they get her into makeup and she's just like, I mean, she's just really all over the place. And then it's time for the show and she can't walk. So she can't, you know, Johnny can't be at his desk and go, Judy, come on out. And they walk out. They had to take Judy. Like, and Johnny's here at his little desk, and here's Judy over here. And they, they put Judy in her chair, and they sit her down. The lights are down. And then when they come back from commercial, she's magically sitting there. But she is drunk. And he's furious, like, you know, don't come on my show like this. But anyway, the how, light... How did he handle it? Could you tell how angry he was? You, yes. You probably can't. He made it, yeah. He, the, but the lights are down. He's like... No, but once the lights came up and you're on... Well, what happened is, Miss Judy, when the lights come up, she's like this. The lights come up... She rises to the occasion. I'm Judy Garland. Yes. Unbelievable. And she couldn't walk to go sing, so he hands her a mic. She sang from her seat. So n nobody out there knew. 
and then when the light, when she was done with her thing, her segment, psh, them pretty little boys came and got her, and, and, they, her. and the lights went back down. The lights went down. They go, you know, it's commercial. They take her off. Wow! Isn't that something? That is. That's quite the story. <laughs> you see, and then later on, when you see the biopics and everything, you see how, you know, really damaged she was. Yeah. Yeah. But what a what a talent she was too. Um, you wrote a book, right? I did. And you wrote about damage. Yes. This this is your book? This is my book. A Legacy of Lies? A Legacy of Lies. And it's a woman's journey to the truth. And you were probably a good bit older when you wrote that. Yes. What what prompted you to write it? Actually, it it was my brother that prompted me. Cuz you know, in when I when when I was growing up in Albany, it you know, it was a tranquil little town and the outside looked lovely and people had their little homes and you know all this stuff was bubbling under it but it wasn't talked about and it was a genteel life and everybody's got secrets and there were there was a secret that I had that um, I had never, I had told one person actually, when I was 28 years old, I told one person about some abuse that happened. And um, I told my brother about it and then years later we were sitting in that same Albany airport and kind of out of the blue, my brother said, you know, I didn't see anything happened in, in our home. Um, so I need, I need some evidence that this stuff that you're saying happened, happened. And um, I said, I'm the evidence. And... Uh, he said, that's not enough. I need more. So I, I lived in Nashville at the time, and I came back and I said, you know what? I got to do this. So I made a list of all my aunts and all of their children. I got their telephone numbers. And um, I called, the first aunt that I called was my Aunt Dottie. And I, I called her and I said, you know, I, I need to talk to you about your father. And this may be difficult. If you don't want me to continue, I won't. And she said, no, no, that's okay, go ahead. And I said, 
your father, my grandfather, started abusing me when I was five years old. And my brother wants some evidence. And I, there was silence. And then I heard her crying. And then she said, tell your brother I'm the evidence. And from there, I went on my journey, calling every female in my family and finding out what happened, if anybody knew anything. So my book is really about all of that, but it's about relationships and it's about secrets and how to how to have these difficult experiences and how to triumph from them and not have them be the order of your life or the the thing that motivates your life or that damages your life but it's the thing that motivates your life in a way that that you're triumphant and that you thrive and that you have passion for um, the joys of life rather than having these experiences be the things that um, alter your life. After you wrote that and you showed it to your brother, did he believe you then? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, After I spoke with my Aunt Dottie, I called my brother. And, uh, and I told him what happened. And his words were, okay, how can I help? He got it then. So he helped me get more numbers. He helped me track down things. And he became a total, total supporter of the journey and has been there ever since. And um, your healing, uh, did it come... Uh, through like therapy, through spiritual development, through this writing, how were you able to, because to me that's the most fascinating thing is how were you able, what process did you use to heal? I've always been on a spiritual journey because a lot of things didn't make sense and I wanted to I knew that there's there's something big, you know, and I felt like that big was in me too, but how to connect all that. So I've always been seeking, seeking, seeking to know. Um, and um, I became a Buddhist when I lived in New York and I chanted and that really helped me a lot. It c- kept me from 
committing suicide. Um, and uh, I continued on that journey, and then uh, the next major thing was um, was getting sober, um, and that was about 27 years ago. What pathway did you use to get sober? I I uh, I went. Uh, may I tell just a little? Oh, please! Just, this little story about getting sober. Um, I, I, you know, it was my drinking was really getting out of control. Though I was functioning, um, but it was Cinco de Mayo in Los Angeles. And you know, big party. Yeah, it's big party day. And um, anyway, I woke up and I started drinking about seven o'clock in the morning. And um, and you know, I was at home alone. And um, anyway, I I I, I drank. Uh, I I think I drank some beer and then I drank some brandy and. Um, I don't know, maybe like about 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I mean, I was just completely out of it. And um, I, my phone rang. And at that time, we had those uh, phone machines, and you could hear who was calling. And the phone rang, and it was a dear friend. And she said, I haven't, I haven't uh, heard from you in a couple of days. Are you okay? And uh, I, I picked up the phone and I said, I'm not. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, she helped me get to, um, to the hospital. And um, they uh, sent me straight to um, Carson, where they have a rehab center, uh, a detox center. And um, I, I went there and... Um, then, um, after I did that program, they felt I wasn't able to take, you know, to be, I, I was a danger to myself. And so they put me in the mental hospital and I stayed there for a month. And um, then that was sort of the, then that's how I got connected to AA. In detox, they make you go. You crawl, you vomit on the way, but they make you go. I mean, they bring the AA meeting to you. And that's how I got connected with AA. And then uh, that began my uh, sobriety program. To what extent do you think that um, your drinking was a direct result of the abuse? Uh, a way of staying alive, um, a way of processing the abuse? After one drink, I didn't want to kill myself. It would just, it was like uh, I was telling you about that first time I tasted the vodka and the orange juice. That was like, oh my God. God, I feel good because I walked around with shame all the time because I had this big secret that nobody knew about. 
and I'm I'm having sex with my grandfather, and nobody knows it but me. So, uh, um, it, alcohol just became oh, and then I could, you know, it made me feel alive at a party, and you know, I just oh my God, it was euphoric. Um, a release. It was a release until, you know, it wasn't anymore. And then, of course, cocaine came in when I moved to L.A. and, you know, all that. It got really dark and heavy fast. Um, but it, it, it made all that go away in the moment. And then when you wake up, it became increasingly more difficult when I woke up to go, oh, it's all still here. So then I'd have to drink again or do another line of Coke. And, um, so it, it masked everything and made life tolerable. And it did keep me from killing myself until that last day when I got sober. And before my friend called, I had that bottle of brandy and I was just, I took the bottle of brandy and I just put, put it up in the, you know, just poured it down on my face and my hair. And I was like, go ahead, you mother, kill me. I just want it out. And another, that magical phone call at that moment, the synchronicity of her calling, just go, and that her voice, which was a loving voice, she was the one that helped me. So then, you know, through the, through all of that, then I was able to really get some serious, deep therapy, and um, you know, to go go down that path, and lots of um, intense weekends and those events that you do to. Do you think your grandfather was an evil man? Do you think he was a very, very sick man? Do you think he was a broken man? Uh, how do you regard him now? Boy. Mm. It, it's evolved, yeah. Because in the beginning, when I became aware of everything, I hated him. I mean, I I believe if I'd been in a room with him, I might have killed him. Um, there there was just so much anger of like, how how the how could you do this? Um, but over the course of my spiritual evolvement, and um, I came to see that. Um, he, whatever his wounds were, he wasn't able to, his demon was sexually driven. And, um, and he, he had no control over that, seemingly, because it was stronger than he was. So I've come to see him now as 
um, I have to I have really forgiven him and I I understand that his wounds were more powerful than his higher self at that time and um, it I have compassion for him because anybody that could do that to so many innocent people, um, he needs he needs my forgiveness, and I'm I'm stronger than he is, and I'm more powerful than he is. Did um, anyone ever confront him? No. Um, when when he died. Um, was he ever able, to, do you think, to get peace for himself? No. So he died at age? I think he was, must have been in his 80s. Um, and he died of stomach cancer. And he died actually right before I left to go to, um, go to New York. Did you go to the funeral? No. Because I, when, when he, right before I, I left to go to New York, my mother said, your granddaddy's in the hospital, you need to go see him and say goodbye to him. So, though she knew none of this, but I went and I re remember standing over his bed and he, he did like this, like, come here. Motioned you over. Yeah, like with his finger, come here, like, like he had done so many times before. But I knew I was safe because I was in the room and everybody was there. So I went over to his bed and he motioned me to lean down so he could say something to me. So I leaned over and he said, don't go to New York. There are bad people there. So I just looked at him and I stepped away and I walked out of the room and I never saw him again and he died shortly after that, but I was in New York. So I, ne I never saw him again. What were you thinking? <laughs> I mean, I mean, that was even, there's no words to describe what that was. What do you think bad people are, my friend? <laughs> so he died shortly after that. So he had no, he, he never had any remorse and, um, and he never was confronted by anybody. And uh, the only confrontations happened was when I started making those phone calls. Have they been able to get help? Most have not. I was the lucky one that I got out. I got out. I got in a big place with different mindsets. And I was able to get help. You know, a lot of, a, many have stayed in, you know, the... Uh, where they grew up and behind you on the wall I I see this master of arts in spiritual psychology um, yeah. I 
take from that and from all the Buddhist flags <laughs> and the sculptures and everything here in your lovely home that um, you've been able to turn around and reach back. There's the story of the Bodhisattva, and the Bodhisattva is the one who makes elects right. rather right. than to go on and be separate, elects to become the teacher and the helper and yes. to lift others up. Yes. Um, how is it that you do that? How does that look in your life? How have you been able to turn around and help others? Well, you know, I think that if I, if, if my brother and I had not gone on this journey together to discover this, it would still be lying dormant in our family. And that was not acceptable. That is dark, heavy, karmic, lifetime crap that strangled the women in my family. And I, if I look back, I can see the effects that it had on them. Some of them said, please don't tell my husband. I've never told him. How do you think it's affecting your family? You know, one saying, oh my God, I, I was never able to share with my husband. And I see how this affected the way I was unable to really fully love my children. And that's deep stuff that would never have been uncovered. And it, it, it was haunting my family and haunting, haunting the entire family. And I feel like that was, my, that was my journey to do that. That was my mission to do it. Hate me if you will. I've shed light on this. And if you don't shed light on the dark, it will eat you alive. And um, so I feel like that was, was my mission. And interestingly enough, two of the people that originally hung up on me have called me since and said, you know, I finally read your book and I'm really sorry. And then we're able to share. This man abused multiple generations, three. three generations. There is the concept that when we heal, we heal multiple generations. That's exactly. Going before and after. That is the Buddhist principle. And so you were able to heal generations before you because of the book and because of right. shedding the light and give power to generations, reach back as the Bodhisattva does and pull future generations forward to say, absolutely. it is absolutely essential. Your life depends upon you getting this shame and this secret yes. out. Yes, uh, that, was, that was my total thought. I'm reaching back. And I'm reaching forward. And you can come with me or not, but this is where I'm going. And I, you have to heal this stuff, you know, because I don't want some little girl in my family now to, to care, because it will be carried. He's not here. 
but that darkness will be carried. And somebody's got to shed the light on it so that the young women now can go, no. I didn't know how to say no, because when I grew up, you do what your adults tell you. Shut up, listen. And that's exactly what I did. And that's how I wound up in the barn. You know, I've just always been a champion for women and women standing up for who they are and without anger, but just. You never had uh, children yourself. Was that an intentional kind of a thing? Yeah. Because? When I was, um, you know, in my 20s, uh, I was not sober yet, and I was still, you know, in the throes of all that. I, I didn't, um, I f life was too difficult, and I said I, I could not bring a child into this, because I thought all of life was like that. You know, I didn't know yet about all this other beauty that life held. So I just said, I, can't, I couldn't do that to another human being. So I elected not to. Um, and that, that has been a good choice. Uh, I'd, be a great, uh, I'd be a great grandma now, and I'm a good aunt now. But um, the, just the last thing I want to say about this, because I, I, I think if we don't, there's, there's so much beauty in this world and, and so much joy and there's so much to be shared between people that is safe and good and honest and compassionate and loving. And that's what really life is. And if, if you have these kind of dark things in your life, be brave and let's heal them and then let's experience the real joy of life, which is the human connection and the compassion that we feel for each other. It's important that we hear that when we become so consumed to think that peace is what everything is about. Yes. We lost Thich Nhat Hanh this yeah. this year, yes. But that's certainly what he was about. Yeah. And uh, there's a very very powerful teaching. Um, you know, uh, Muslims refer to peace is at the core of their faith. Christians refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and then here are Buddhists who are not an Abrahamic faith, who are from yeah. the opposite side of the planet, yeah. who refer to this very human yeah. principle of peace as, yeah. the, as the default setting. And yeah. peace could not occur in our hometown of Albany, Georgia, yeah. without outing all the the violence of genteel racism, yes, the everyday violence of it, and the violence of this kind of 
um, toxic masculine sexual abuse yeah. um, without coming to terms with that. Yeah. And as a man not being in any way defensive or in any way diminishing the horrific damage, mm. the life and death damage it, it causes. So um, uh, I so you know love and admire you and your and, and your your story. I I just feel so privileged when I when I hear your story, you know, to to, to bear witness. I mean, it helps, you know, it helps so many generations. Yeah, and the, the good part, as you say, is, you know, everybody's got a story, but everybody can get out. Everybody can find their strength and find their courage and step into who they're really supposed to be and who they really are and at the core of that is peace and joy and joy is joy is available to all of us thank you so much for this god bless you thank god you, bless Jean you my friend thank you what a what a profound impact she had on me in just an hour and a half had never met her before that, had never met her. Um, the book, if you're interested, her book is called A Legacy of Lies. A Legacy of Lies. And her name is Jean, J-E-A-N-N-E Hall. It's available on Kindle, available on Amazon in paperback. Uh, gets four and a half stars on Amazon. And i probably give it five. Uh, Jean, thank you so very, very much. I'm grateful to you. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. I am a person filled with gratitude and one of the big reasons and the people I'm grateful to is you for supporting this podcast. Um, through thick and thin, and we're still going more than two years into our third year. So thanks so very, very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. <laughs>